All right. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you, everybody. It's an honor to, to get to stand up here this morning. And um, yeah, I'm just honored to be a part of this company. I think uh, I was just telling, I was hanging with some of my family this, um, this weekend. I was like, you wouldn't believe the people in our church. They are like amazing. And I was just like, you wouldn't believe like what God's doing through. And you hear it a little bit on these testimonies of the week, but I mean, it's just a little bit. Jesus is so good, and he's consumed hearts in such a way that, you know, these things bubble out. And, and so I want to encourage you, if you're new here, really, like, we want to get you plugged in, connected. We want you to feel known. Um, as Kevin was saying, like, it's no more time. It's no longer time to, we can be socially distanced, but we can't be relationally distanced, all right? Like, we can't do that, not in this hour. Um, and so we have that newcomer orientation, which you heard about during the announcements. Really encourage you to go for that. You're new even if you, like, came during the pandemic like a year ago. You're still new because, you know, this season is crazy. <laughs> so you're still new. You're welcome to come to that. Um, sign up for that. Um, so this morning, I'm actually going to uh, do have a continuation of what I spoke on, what I taught on last month. And the title of that sermon was, Take another look at Revelation. And so this is going to be part two of taking a look at Revelation. So I encourage you, if you, if you didn't listen to that or you weren't here, you can go watch it online. Um, you know, check that out because I'm really just going to build off of that. But if, you're, if you haven't listened to that, it's okay. Like, I'll, I'll bring you up to date. Um, so that's where I'm going today. Uh, for those of you that were here last time, I, I kind of opened that that message talking about an experience I had with my daughter, Lilu, and how she was scared to watch, to, to see different scenes in a movie. And in order to comfort her, in order to help her not be afraid, I, I sat with her and I told her in advance the things that were happening in this kid movie that she was watching. So, no, this is happening and this is happening, and, and at the very end, it's all going to be okay, things are going to come together, and this bad guy is going to get defeated, and this good guy is going to be victorious. And so I connected that with the book of Revelation in that it tells us the things that are coming and it gives us, it's supposed to give us security. But how many of you know, sometimes when you read the book of Revelation, security is like the last thing you feel, right? <laughs> you read the book and it kind of like, it's jarring. And so what I want to do today is give you some tools to help read the book, to see it more clearly. And, and I, my purpose here is not to give every detail of the book of Revelation, but it's to, it's to give you... Um, some tools to use that your desire to understand this book would grow and that you would dig in and understand the depth of the truth and the life of Jesus that is exposed and revealed through this book. All right. So that's my goal. I'm out front with it. Um, you know, the book Revelation is not as scary as it looks. And I think if we break it down and talk through it, you'll agree with me. And that, that's what I'm after this morning. So just to give a, a little bit of backstory, um, the book is written by John the Apostle. Um, around 80, 90, and, and it's written to seven churches um, that are in modern-day Turkey. So we went through last time those letters to the churches, and we showed, you know, even the revelation of Jesus, like he's got the flaming eyes and, he's, and you know, the mouth with the sword. So we kind of went through some of those details. So I won't go there today, but we're going to focus primarily today on Revelation 4 and 5, and that is the throne room encounter that John has. And the songs we were singing this morning are connected to that encounter. And so if you're not familiar with the story, I'm going to read it and uh, I'll take you through. Um, but a few things thematically going on in Revelation, and I mentioned this last time, the book of Revelation shows how God is present, he's powerful, and he has a perfect plan. 
So the three Ps. He's present, powerful, perfect plan. That is conveyed in the book of Revelation. It's the most important prophecy, I, I believe, of our time, and it is a prophecy, and it's worthy of our time and our attention because the things in it will come to pass. And it is a revelation of Jesus. So, yes, it, it talks about end times, things happening. It talks about the end of the world and new heavens and the new earth, but ultimately it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so that we, we want to keep that the front and first and foremost. Now, the book of Revelation gives us confidence in God's sovereignty. And confidence in God's sovereignty does not lead to apathy. And I'll convince you of this. People think, oh, God, he's going to do what he's going to do. So, you know, like when, when we're so confident in his sovereignty, we just don't do anything. But no, actually, the people that believe in God's sovereignty, the people that they have this, this connection, this intimacy with God. And so they partner in his sovereignty because they know in the sovereignty of God, he's chosen to use me and you to bring forth his kingdom to do the things he wants to do. And so it's not apathetic. It actually gets you like excited and charged up and say, I'm going to pray and see the things that God will do, but he wants to do it with me and through me. And, and so it, it's not apathetic to have that view. That's, the sovereignty of God is really important. And it's important for us spe specifically in this hour when we can get jaded by the things that we see, by the things that are happening that we don't think they're supposed to happen or we don't understand why they're happening. The sovereignty of God is very helpful in moments like this, that, that truth, that revelation. So I believe as we, as we start to read these scriptures, and any scripture for that matter, it's so critical that we have child, a childlike approach, that childlike faith. And Vanessa, my wife, spoke about this some. Even Sherwin just references in his testimony that childlikeness. And, you know, children, I have three of them, and, and I can tell you they're sponges. They, they can soak and absorb so much information. It's crazy. It, it really is. They, they're able, I mean, they understand languages much more quickly, quickly than we do. And so they're growing mentally, they're growing spiritually, and they're growing physically at extremely fast rates. Whereas when we get to adulthood, we're not as inclined to, to grow and expand and change like that. Um, now, I believe we are made that way, but maybe through time, through different circumstances, we've kind of dumbed down our, um, our ability to grow or we become bitter or disappointed or you name it and, it, and it keeps us from having that childlike ability to grow and learn. And so, so my, um, you know, I come home and I'm kind of like the first guy at my home that, that sees like the Amazon packages, right? We, we get everything there's so many things you can have shipped to your house. I'm not going to the store. I'm just going to get on Amazon. So I come home, and, and often I'll get the Amazon box, and I'll bring it up the stairs, and I'll ask Vanessa, like, hey, like, what's in this box? Because if you're a parent, you know that you can't just open any box that your wife gets from Amazon in front of your children because there could be a birthday gift in there, or there could be something you don't want your children to touch. And they're like, oh, boy, I want that. So I, they can only have the, the little popper things. I give them those things, but I don't let them know what's in, in the box. So anyway, I'm like, Vanessa, what's in this box? And she says, oh, it's, um, it's shoes for Fern. I'm like, okay, great. Next week, another box comes up. I bring it up. I'm like, what's in here? And it's, oh, it's shoes for Fern. Oh, oh, great, cool, new shoes. The third week, I, I go out and bring the box up. She said, I'm like, what's in this box? Oh, it's shoes for Fern. I'm like, oh, that's weird. The fourth week, you know, I go up and I bring a box. She says, I'm like, what's in this? She, oh, Fern, she's got new shoes. And I'm like, babe, I think I need an intervention right now. Like, have you checked the budget? Like, do we have shoe budget for this? Because, like, I've got three shoes, you know? And, and she tries to give me more shoes, but 
I'm real practical. You know, I've had the same hiking boots for like two decades. Like I was wearing those boots in college and you'll see me on the mountain wearing them today because they're good boots and you know, I don't need more than one. So anyway, now I'm like, what is going on? And she's like, no, no, like I'm constantly getting these shoes but then, you know, it takes a while. By the time I get them, the size is off, and she, her feet are just growing so fast. And also, there's just complexities of a shoe size, I guess. So if you're an entrepreneur, help us figure this out. You can make a lot of money by figuring out this problem. But, but my point is, children, their feet are constantly growing, so they need shoes with a lot of space in them to accommodate them. Whereas me, I've got the same old shoes. I've had them for, you know, decades, like I said. But we when, we, when we walk into the scriptures, right, here's my point. When we step into the scriptures, we want to be wearing shoes that have space for our theology, our understanding of God to grow, right? You don't want to come in with our feet filled in our shoes and just think, like, we're going to read the scriptures and we're just going to reinforce what we already believe we know about God. And so it produces, it doesn't produce people that are, that are, that are flourishing, that are full of life when we come in with these preconceived ideas of who God is based on what we first were taught. And I talked about it a little, a little last month where it's like what you first were taught about the book of Revelation can often be the way you view the book forever. It's like that's what I think about it, irrelevant or crazy or I can't understand it. So we have to come and approach any scripture with shoes that have room to grow, all right? We need room to grow. And our past theology can become such a stumbling block in us, in our growth. You know, you, you hear something from a great Bible teacher, somebody you respect, a friend, and you just kind of take that as, well, this is the lens at how I'm going to view this scripture or this text. And guess what? God, he, the Holy Spirit, when you read the word, may be wanting to speak new things to you, deeper understandings, and we're kind of just stuck in the way we used to read it and think, ah, this is how it is. But in this season, I think many of us have gotten quiet. We've gotten shaken up by the things happening, and we're, and we're looking with fresh eyes at the scriptures, and that's what I want to encourage you to do today with this book. So here's a few ways not to read this book. So don't read the book of Revelation or any book, for that matter, trying to fit cram your own theology into the book, all right? That's, that's number one. Let things challenge you as you read them, and, and let that become a dialogue with God. Like, tension is good, when you read something and it challenges you, like let that become a conversation you have with God. Let start digging into the in the context of what that verse actually means instead of just kind of ah, it doesn't fit my grid. We'll just put this over here. So that's number one. Don't take the book and fit it to your theology. Number two, don't read the book in a vacuum. Can you imagine if I've never read the Lord of the Rings, but I just imagine let's let's say you read the very last book of the Lord of the Rings series, like. How do you think like you would understand that book? Wouldn't that be kind of like a little challenging to understand? You hear all these characters and all these things, and you don't fully know what you're reading. And so I feel, too, the book Revelation, we can jump into and not realize the whole storyline of what's culminating in this book. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a genesis to Revelation. We need that full picture to actually be able to read Revelation for what it says. All right? Um, and cultural context is really key, too. We can just read stuff, and we put it through our modern-day lens. And we're like, oh, yeah, of course. That means, you know, this, the, the veil must be like my mask. Like, that's what it is. The veil of God is this mask that I'm wearing. I'm just I'm being funny. But, it, you know, we take it, and we just put this modern sort of spin on it, and we, and we try to and we think, oh, like, that's the meaning of it. And it's like, no, like, these people were Jewish. They, like, 
you, un- you got to understand a little more Jewish culture to actually get the vibe for what God is trying to say through his word, okay? Um, ways, I got one more. Ways, another way to not read the book, this is around the same vein, don't just cut out the parts you don't like, all right? Like, we're so good at that. You know, I'll, I'll even try to do that if I'm up here reading a psalm in the morning, and you're like, you're reading it, and you're like, yeah, it's so powerful, the goodness of God. And then it's like, he's like damning his enemies. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to put that part in. Or he's like, oh, God, I'm falling apart. And I'm like, okay, not going to start the morning service with that. So we, we just do that. We cut and we, we cut out parts. And that's, that's the Thomas Jefferson approach, right? He would actually cut parts of the Bible out literally with scissors. So don't do that. That's, that's not helpful here. Um, a few ways to read the book of the Bible, three ways to read it, or to read the book of Revelation, rather. Um, believe what the author says. There's so much skepticism, like, and if you get into all these different, you know, theological texts, like, well, you know, what about this? And, you know, I think you really meant this. And, you know, well, if you look at this scripture, this manuscript, the piece was torn off. So I think it's not right. And so we can get so skeptical about the scriptures. And I think, once again, it's important to ask questions and, and try things. I'm not saying, like, don't ask questions, but let's believe what the author says. This is a prophecy. This is going to come to pass. It's the revelation of Jesus. And the symbols that they lay out in Revelation, let's believe they are what the author says they are. Because the author will tell you, John will tell you what the symbols are, many of them. Um, another way to read the book, focus on what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying. That's a really important way to read the book of Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus. And so we spoke last time, Jesus is writing to these seven churches, right? And the key revelation in what he's revealing to them is actually seen in his self, in the, in the way he looks, in the way he reveals himself, in the way he depicts himself to these specific churches. So look at what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is doing. This book is about the leadership of Jesus. And so if you're not looking for his leadership in that storyline in Revelation, you're going to miss the major themes. And we're going to be really focused on the minor themes, which there's a lot of judgments and stuff that you can, they're real, and we don't want to, like, dismiss them, but they shouldn't become majors. But the major theme is what Jesus is doing. And, and so that's, that's the storyline we want to follow today. Okay, so Revelation 4 and 5, we're going to jump into that. As I said, these are, this is a throne room encounter that John has. And so we see this throughout the Bible. There's these throne room encounters. They have a lot of similar um, connections, a lot of similar themes to this one. And I find that fascinating. So you read this and you actually realize, oh, this stuff that John is writing about, this thing he's seeing, was seen by Old Testament prophets in different facets, in different ways. So I'll give you a few of those. You look up Ezekiel 1. That's a throne room encounter that Ezekiel has. He goes up into heaven, and he sees very similar things to what John's seeing. You look at Isaiah 6. Isaiah is having a similar type encounter with similar themes. Look at Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is woven into the book of Revelation. Daniel is a really key verse, a really key book to read as you're reading Revelation. All right. So here's some key themes that you see in these throne room experiences. Number one, you see winged creatures. You've got the, the cherubim and the seraphim, and they're, they're, they're different in different, you know, um, in the various encounters, but you see, you see that consistently in the throne room and also in the ark, so, or in the, um, the tabernacle and the temple. You have these winged creatures that are around the presence of God. Fire. You see fire pretty regularly and in lots of places around the throne room. Lightning and thunder. You see that as well. This is my favorite one. You see people falling down. There is... 
when, when people are having these throne room experiences, they're not standing for very long. <laughs> like, they are overwhelmed. I mean, Daniel is like, I was exhausted for days. Like, so these are, these are, you think Revelation's intense just to read it? Try, like, being in the throne room and experience this. <laughs> so that you see that theme pretty regularly. You see commissioning that happens in the throne room. And this is with Ezekiel and, and with um, Isaiah. They're commissioned to go out and speak and be the mouthpiece of the Lord from the place of the throne room. And you'll, you'll see today, Jesus himself is commissioned from the throne room in Revelation 5. Um, the actions and the things that happen in these throne room experiences have ramifications on earth. So just to be clear, the throne room, this is heaven. We're talking about in heavenly experiences, but things that happen there really matter on earth. They shift and they do things. So we should care a lot what's happening because that has direct impact, and there's always ramifications on earth when things happen in that heavenly realm in that throne room, all right? So we're going to dig in Revelation 4, starting at verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, this is John talking, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white, and they had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and pearls of thunder. In front of the throne were seven lamps were blazing. They are the seven spirits of God. So this is quite a picture. And you have these 24 elders, which it, sound, it seems to me that they are just these heavenly beings. And you have the, 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 seven, the seven lamps that are blazing. And it says here, these are the seven spirits of God. So this, we're going to have, in this throne room, we're going to have the Trinity pretty soon. Right now we've got, we've got the throne and we've got the Father God. That's, he's sitting, he's the only one on the throne, and that's him. And you've got the seven torches in front, and that represents the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is in this room. And, and we'll keep going. You'll see Jesus is going to make his appearance quite soon. So uh, we're going to keep going here. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in the front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was that like a flying eagle. And each of the four creatures had six wings and, it had, and covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Day and night, they never stopped saying it. And they're full of eyes, gazing at the throne. Keep going. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down. I told you, people fall down in the throne room. They fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne, and they say, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will... They were created and have their being. 
this chapter, the, the fascination surrounding the throne and the glory of God and the beauty. Can you just imagine the beauty of God? Like, can you imagine being in that room? I mean, we feel these moments, even today. I mean, it was strong in here. And you feel these moments of the beauty and the glory of God. But we have no clue what it's going to be like in that place. I mean, literally, that's all they can say is holy, holy, holy. It's all they can say. What are they seeing? Like, what are they experiencing? God wants to fascinate us, and he will fascinate us all the days of our life if we are willing to just look at him and, and see him. If we are willing, the depth, like, people get, we get so bored today, people being me too. Like, we get bored with, with certain things, and it's like, I think we just, we miss who God really is. Because if we see him as he is, we'll never get bored. And that's not to condemn anybody. That's to say, oh, my gosh, there is so much more. And you don't have to wait to the heavenly throne room to see it. You can see it now. You can experience it now. And it's not just being in a worship set. Like, you experience the glory and fascination of God all the time. You experience in your work. You experience through nature. You experience when you're with your family and your kids. When you're beholding and looking at him, and no matter what you're doing, you're experiencing exactly what they're experiencing. Maybe not exactly, but you're getting a taste of the, the fascination, the glory, the beauty of God. And I believe in this season, we are, we are a company, um, and, and really, uh, I don't know if that's we are a company. Everybody, every believer on planet Earth, <laughs> if, if we can be in the state of fa continual fascination and understanding of the glory of God, it, it will transform everything. And we'll be able, we'll, we'll, we will shine bright like lights so it's not about trying to do stuff or build stuff. Or it really starts with being fascinated with his glory, seeing him rightly. And, and that is just such a key piece of who we are as a house um, and what I believe is so necessary in this hour. Um, verse 11, different ways we worship him. They worship him simply for who he is. We, they, he's worshiped because he created all things. And they worship him because the, by his will and his being, all things were created. And it's just even different ways we worship God. Just one, just for who he is. Second, because he created us in all things. And third, because there's such purpose. He, he's created, he willed us into existence. There's purpose in each and every one of us. So there's just different ways that we worship him. Um, you, see the, you, you see the elders in their response. What do they do? They cast their crowns down. They lay their crowns down. There's, there's a humbling and a dependency that happens to someone when you're in the throne room. And that's why it's so key for our lives, right? Because we have such a, we have such a propensity to, to be arrogant and to think we know it all and, and to think and to make our lives about us. But when we see him as he is, it's humbling. And we just lay down our crowns and anything else that we have, we say, God, it's all yours. It's all yours, God. Uh, you are holy. And, and I... I I mean, Isaiah put it like this in his throne room experience. He said, woe is me, I cried. I am ruined. That's what Isaiah said when he saw the holiness, the glory of God. I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. This is Isaiah 6, 5. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Who am I to see this God? That's our response when we see him as he is. So there's such a holy reverence and a fear of God that comes in these throne room moments. And if you think Revelation 4 is powerful, wait till you get to Revelation 5, because it's like a whole nother level. Um, so 
So before we get into Revelation 5, I want to talk about just even the concept which is displayed here of, of beholding, right? In this moment, they're beholding Father God on the throne. And in that, I have a story that connects with that. So many of you know I have a little baby. Her name is Florence. She is six months um, old. She's getting big. And, and Florence, she's my third child, so this is not my first rodeo. And with with children at that age, you're often in this place of sleep training them. So I'll let you know what that is a little bit. So basically, kids, they go through, they normally fall asleep with, you know, they nurse or they have a bottle. So they're used to getting help from their parents in order to put them to sleep, okay? But there's a moment that comes when they need to go to sleep on their own because mom and dad are tired and we got to figure this thing out. Um, so in that moment, I come in and, you know, I'm the, you know, I'm, I'm in there with the baby ready to do this job, get her to sleep. And it's always hard um, with our other girls. You know, a lot of times kids will cry and scream because you're basically, it's a huge change. And you just kind of put them down in their crib and you're like, all right, fall asleep, figure it out. Okay, see you later. And you, you know, and you try to, you try to help them, but they need, they need to figure out how to do it on their own. So I go with Florence, and this is maybe a month or two ago, and, and I put her down and I'm waiting because I'm like, all right. Here it comes. Like, I got to get my emotions ready because it's going to be intense, and I got to power through the cries. And I, we have strategies for this stuff. So we, like, Vanessa and I, we read books, and, you know, we try to figure out how to do it. And there's one strategy called the Sleep Lady Shuffle. Yeah, so I've done that one before, and that's where you put them down, and you just kind of slowly go over. Um, so we got our strategies, right, that kind of make it to, to make it the best we can. And so I, I put her down. I'm ready for the Sleep Lady Shuffle, you know, ready. And... It, I couldn't believe it. She, she goes, she looks at me like a little surprised, and then she goes, and she smiles at me, and she turns over and goes to sleep. And I was like, what? I was like, Vanessa, are you praying? Like, you'll never believe what just happened to me. She smiled at me and went to sleep. I couldn't believe it. I was like, Lord, did I have to go through that, like, earlier? Like, could it have been this easy? Is this your glory and your grace? What's, what, what did I do differently? And, and so the Lord really showed me with Florence. So her name actually means flourishing one. Like it's connected with Psalm 91. Um, and she was born in the middle of COVID. So, you know, I felt that was fitting. And, um, and, but he showed me with Florence, because I've been around so much, I'm constantly holding her. I've hold, held her more than the other kids. And, and so she's very, we have this connection, um, a deeper connection maybe they even have with the other two. And so she's learned, she's always looking at me, I'm looking at her, I'm putting her to sleep. And so there's this trust and this connection. And what I believe is because we built that trust and connection, when this big change came and when it was time for her to really do something she's never done and, and go put herself to sleep, and I put her down, she, she took confidence in our connection. She knew I was in, what I was doing was in her best interest and that I was there in the room with her to be with her. Like, hey, you're going to do this, baby, you're going to do it, and I'm going to sit in this room with you, and you're going to go to sleep, and it's going to be great. And so there was confidence that she had in our connection, and it allowed her to just smile and roll over. When a lot of, you know, normally you're going to freak out. It's a big change. This, I'm asking her to do something she's never done before. But because her dad's in the room, and she has connection with her dad, she is not afraid. And she's actually willing to to go along with this big change, right? So many of you, we've had big changes in this season. And, and the question is, 
Have you allowed your father to hold you? Are you, are, are you allowing your heart to be connected to his heart? And sometimes when you get laid down and asked to do something new or when something changes, it exposes that maybe you haven't been allowing him to hold you. You haven't been connecting with his heart. And don't let that freak you out, but just say, okay, God, I need a throne room encounter with you. I need to be connected daily with your heart because I'd rather, I'd rather it happen where, where through, in the throne room, in the presence of God, I'm, I'm being, um, what's the word, corrected versus a circumstance, a big change in life that throws me, and now I realize I'm off. I'd much rather have it come from the Lord himself, him speaking to me in his time with me versus a life circumstance that has bigger ramifications, right? So all that was supposed to be point number one. And so point number one is when you behold God, you will flourish in every season. That when you behold him, you'll flourish no matter what change comes. And Bill spoke last week, Shadrach, Meshach, um, and Abednego, they talk about somebody, talk about a, a bunch of guys who were, they were beholding, you know, like Daniel, they're playing three times a day. They're in Babylon. I mean, they're in like, you know, uh, the devil's playground. And, and when the king comes and says, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to throw you in this furnace unless you don't bow down to me, they are, they are beholding and that, that change, they're being asked, you know, for their very lives. And they say, no. Like, no way. We, we see the kingdom of God, and it's greater, and it's bigger, and it's more beautiful, and it's more powerful than your kingdom, and we will never bow down to you. We'll never bow down to your God. And, and so that something welled up in them where they could overcome that change because they were beholding the Father, and they were connected to his heart. And, and so, yeah, like, I want to <laughs> be in that place if that moment comes for me. I don't think I'm going to get thrown in a furnace anytime soon, but you, you get the idea. All right, so point number one, when you behold God, you will flourish in every season. Number two, when you behold God, your priorities become his priorities. All right? Now, this concept you find pretty well um, stated in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we who all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with an ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When we're beholding and looking like him, we start to become like him. This is a key concept. And that's what they're doing in the throne. They're looking at him. And when we do it, we become like him, and our priorities change. And they become his naturally, because we see him for who he is, and we reflect it. And, and I just think of, too, my own personal prayer life has changed a lot because of this because of the importance of beholding. When we're spending time in prayer and we're beholding the Lord, it, it's funny how your prayers just begin to turn. Because you can come in, you know, and you got your militant list, and you're like, yeah, we're going to go after it. And then you see the glory of the Lord and his beauty, and you can't help talking about how beautiful and wonderful Jesus is. That's just, that ends up being all your prayer. You're like, well, I don't think we did a whole lot of warfare here because all we could say was talk about, you know, how beautiful Jesus is and he's the Alpha and the Omega, he's beginning the end, he's wonderful and majestic in every way. That's all we talked about. But then at the end, you, you do, because you know his heart, you can pray his heart. 
And so it needs to be in that order. And that personally has changed me quite a bit in how I pray. And I can pray a lot longer now. So some of you were, you know, we're doing our Friday night service. We're going to start at April 11th, which is, or April 2nd, April 2nd, which is going to be so fun. And some of you have never even been here on a Friday. And it's a time of beholding. It's two hours of prayer and worship. It's time to behold. And you can pray so long when you're beholding. And it's not tedious because you, you, you're in, you're connected to his heart. And that's where prayer really needs to come out of, the heart of God. Um, so one, when you behold, you will flourish in every season. When you behold God, your priorities become his priorities. And my last point, when you behold God, you will glorify Jesus. When you behold him, Jesus comes into the picture. And I'll, I'll give you an example. John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist is out. He's, he's, he understands his calling. He's baptizing people. He's saying, repent. And he's, and he's out doing his thing. And Jesus rolls up. And John the Baptist is the first person to say, oh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In his service, in his love for God, when Jesus comes in the picture, unlike the Pharisees, he sees Jesus for who he is. And he prophesies, behold, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, this is, you know, this is Revelation 5, so I'm going to turn to it. Revelation 5, starting at verse 1. Then I saw at the right hand, right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Don't miss that part. Sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. And I wept. And I wept because no one was found who, who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll. And it's seven seals. This is a, the biggest moment of human history right here. Outside of the, the cross and the resurrection. Because the cross and the resurrection are what made Jesus able, capable, to open the scrolls and bring the kingdom of God to its fulfillment. And that scroll, it, it is the plan of God. It's the will of God. And I've heard it even put as um, the inheritance, because I guess in Roman culture at that time, the, the scroll that was like the will, the actual inheritance, had seven seals on it. So he may even be referring to that. And you think about opening up the inheritance for the, for the kingdom, for the kings and priests, which are all of those that have received Jesus, to, to come into the fullness. And so there it is, the inheritance. There it is, like God's plan. And it's sitting there and oh, shoot, like, no one's able to open it. Like, what are we going to do? And, and John is a mess. When we see people cry and fall down in, in scriptures, we need to take note of it. Because this is, this is a moment, all right? This is, this is big time. Anyway, we can't read this enough. This is such a significant moment. I mean, sometimes we just read through this stuff and realize this is the world, literally, the, the the turning point of the world is taking place in heaven. And so I want to be engaged. I want to know exactly what's going on. Now let's look at how God reveals Jesus. Then I saw a lamb. A lamb. Looking as if he had been slain. 
standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, and with the seven, and which are the seven spirits of God, sent out to all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the, on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God's persons, for, for God, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, this is everybody, right? This is us this morning worshiping with the rocks everybody to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and they worshiped only jesus is worthy only jesus there's no one else under heaven and john wept because he said how 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 is this gonna how is god's plan how is his kingdom gonna come how is God going to make all things right? Sin has corrupted this world. We, is, we have no chance. And in that humility and that dependency and that crying out, he saw the lamb. And he said, my gosh, there's a way. There's a way back to God. There's a way for restored relationship, connection. And there's a whole new kingdom coming forth. I mean, this is exciting stuff. And, the, you know, the four living creatures, like, they just say simple things. They're like, holy, holy, holy. Amen. You know, they're just like in all. <laughs> That's how I see them. Like, man, this is wild. So only Jesus is worthy. They refer to Jesus here as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of Jesse. So these are both references to, the lineage, to his lineage, right? He came from the tribe of Judah. And then the kingdom, he, he is the root of Jesse. So there's prophecy that's baked into all these statements that are being made. And so I encourage you to go back, look up these, these names for Jesus because they're declaring he is Messiah and he's the fulfillment of all the prophecies, of all the waiting that, that has been taking place since the time of Genesis. So just full picture, full context here. And what is he doing? He's seated at the right hand of God. That's where he takes the scroll, from the right hand of God. And we know from the scriptures that he's seated at the right hand of God now. Jesus is. That's where he's at. He's seated at the right hand of God until all things come under his authority. And he's gonna, they're gonna, God's putting all things under, under him as a footstool. There's going to be a footstool, and all things are under Jesus. And so there's authority and dominion in that place to, on the right hand of God the Father. And they're worshiping Jesus, saying he is equivalent to God himself, right? Jesus is God. He's equivalent to God. They're worshiping him. They're falling down and worshiping the Lamb. I think it's so interesting that you and I are in this story. We're actually here. We're in Revelation 5, you and I. 
So you read this thing and you think, oh, this is this heavenly experience that's, you know, hasn't happened yet, that's going to bring forth all this stuff. But we're in it. We're there with the bowl. Remember the bowl? The bowl is full of the prayers of God's people. So that means you're in my prayers, that our prayers are going to be there on that day where God is going to kick off his kingdom. And these, like our prayers are in the room. It's pretty cool. That makes you want to pray. <laughs> makes you want to pray the right prayers. Because <laughs> I want my prayers to be in that bowl. And so God, even in his sovereignty, says, I'm going to do this, but I want to use you. Your prayers are a key part of what I'm setting up, what I'm doing. And in fact, I'm not going to do these things until the nations, you're going out to disciple the nations. So that's when the culmination of these things are going to take place, when the nations are being discipled. So we're a part of this storyline. It's not just us watching God do his thing. Now, he comes in and does his thing, and that's where there's peace and, and joy in my heart, but he does it with us. So just to, to close here, I want to I focus a bit on the larger context of this text. So we're reading this, and you know, we're seeing all the things happening in heaven, and, and it's pretty jarring. But remember, the seals that are being, that Jesus is about to break, and we're going to get to that next time I teach, I'm going to teach more on that, um, are their judgments coming on the earth. I mean, that's, that's pretty intense. So they're saying, well, he's worthy, he's worthy to, you know, to fulfill all that God has. But what part of God's plan is he's going to bring judgments on the earth, and that's heavy, and that don't preach well. But that's what's happening that, that is the context for what's happening in this, in this scripture. He's worthy to do it. And so it's important that when we're reading this text, we see where everything is going. And so I encourage you, even before, because I'm not going to teach on all this other stuff um, for a bit now, I think, read through the, the whole judgment section, but look at the end. Look at Revelation 19 on. See where this is going. Because that'll help you understand, A, it's the lamb who's doing it. The lamb is the one breaking the seals. But it's all, it's all going to be, or it's all coming together in the new heaven and the new earth and God wiping every tear from every eye. There's, there are good things. You want the kingdom of God to come. It's going to be a great day. It's also going to be terrible. It's also going to be hard. But we have to see the full picture so we don't get offended in the middle part. <laughs> that's what he's trying to do. Even for these seven churches, that's the point of Revelation is to to equip us and empower us to not be overwhelmed by hard things, by change, by tribulation, by trial, but to stand fast and not give up and not give in and trust Jesus and behold him and love him and see his kingdom come to pass the way he said it would. So that's the point, and that's the larger context that I think is so critical. And you think about it, it's, once again, I go back to humility. Isn't it humbling that Jesus is the only one that can bring real justice to the earth. Like you and I, like, and, and Bill's mentioned this before, like, I, I love when he says this. He's like, we all want to see justice, right? And so we're like, yeah, like, bring justice on this thing, on that thing. Like, do this. But then when, when it comes to us, you're like, oh, but don't bring justice on me. Because when, when you see him for his holiness, and you're like Isaiah, like, well, I'm a man of unclean lips. All of a sudden, you're like, yeah, justice, justice, justice. Mercy, 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 mercy. <laughs> mercy, please. And so sin is this, 
when you see God, you see your sin in a sense because you realize his holiness, and it does equalize us. It makes us less prone to accuse and to, and to cast judgment on one another. And I mean, that's what Jesus did, right, with the woman at the well. He said, let you, let you, let you who has not sinned cast the first stone. And he equalized them all. They wanted to make this woman out to be, you know, this terrible person that deserves judgment and, and death and by stoning. But he equalized the whole room when he said, go ahead, toss it if you haven't sinned. Go for it. And they all left. They dropped their rocks. So through these throne room encounters, it's going to help you and I drop our rocks in this season. It really is. Because we can know what's right and wrong, but we don't want to be going out there throwing justice prayers, praying justice on this or on that, because we don't want it on ourselves. So a quick word about, about judgments, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up. Because um, anyway, there's a lot I could say about judgments. It's kind of a challenging topic <laughs> for sure. Um, so I was, uh, I was driving. I take my kids to school. Um, I take my daughter to school, Fern. And I was driving to school the other day. And if you drive in New York, you, you'll, know, you'll feel me on this. So, you know, you have your route that you go. And I know the little tricks, right? I know how to like time certain stoplights and maybe cut a few corners. So there's this one particular place where I drive her to school every morning that man, if I can hit, if I can time it perfect, I will be in the left lane and I'll slide over to the right just before the illegal right turn and then I'll cut in and you know, I'll save myself 10 minutes and I'll get her to school and we won't be tardy in life, everything will be good. So I'm, I'm there that morning, I'm a little behind, I'm making my move going through Manhattan and, uh, and lo and behold, behind me, I see the, I see the red and blue lights. Woo, woo, woo. And Fern, she's in the back seat. She's like, what's happening? What is this? Oh, this is cool. And so I'm like, yeah, quiet, quiet. And it's a, you know, I pull over, and the officer's like, yeah, you, do you know what you did? And you know, so I'm like, yeah, I think you're, you know, think you're saying, because I turned right at that place I wasn't supposed to. And he's like, yeah. And so anyway, I get my fat ticket. And uh, I, I get in the car, and Fern is just like, she's loving every minute of it. And I'm thinking, we're going to be super late now. And so I'm driving, and she's, and she's like, uh, I can't wait to tell everybody at school about what just happened. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, like, I'm like, Fern, like, don't tell them. That's my first reaction. Cover it up. Don't tell them. And, like, you know, you're supposed to cover your father. You remember Noah? You cover him. And um, <laughs> I don't know. That, I wasn't supposed to say that, but, um, but yeah, I tell her, you know, cover him, cover me. And, uh, and then I'm like, you know what? That law is dumb anyway. Like, that's a stupid law. You know, I should be able to turn right. And, and, and so, you know, I start to try to justify to her why I broke the law. I'm like, yeah, it's not a good law anyway. Traffic should flow. And this is terrible law. And, and so it's funny in that moment, the, the Holy Spirit conviction starts coming. I'm not training her. This is not good. Like, I don't want to train to think like this. <laughs> and I, I realize, you know, that we, we do this. We do this so frequently, we don't even realize it. We, we do things that, that violate what God says, right? They're against God's word. And we do them, and we think, well, you know, it's kind of getting in my way. I don't even really get that rule, God. I'm just going to do this because I need to get to school quick, and I need, you know, I've got stuff to do, and this rule doesn't even make any sense. And so we do it, and we disregard what God says, and we, we don't realize then when things, when challenging things come up, and we feel the, 
the ramifications of our actions, and we deal with consequence for our sin, and then we get mad at God, and we blame God, and we're like, oh, man, God, like, why is this happening to me? This is terrible, and he's like, like, but you had, you're not respecting how I created you. You're not, you're not listening to the things I have for you. They're not there to hinder you. They're there to protect you. They're there because I love you, and and so we, we get that way with sin. I think we, come, we become a bit complacent. And, and we think that we can just do these sins and these things that are against God. And they may be little things, but we think that's not going to have any ramifications on us. And when we belittle sin, it really confuses us. Because then when judgment comes and, and hard things come, we, we just think God's mean and, and mad and, and, a bad, and a bad guy. And so we don't understand his goodness because we violated what God said to do, and now we're getting a consequence. And I, I do this all the time with, with kids. You need to feel a consequence when you do something that's incorrect. Like, you need to feel it. And, and so anyway, just to make a long story short, I, 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 we can't sever our conscience and think that there's not going to be ramifications. And I think judgment is so confusing because we don't want God in charge. <laughs> We just want to do things our way. We want to get to our destination. And when God says, do it this way, this is the right way, this is how you were made, we're like, I'm good. But sin is so destructive. And that's what judgment really is. It's an indictment on sin. It's not about the goodness of God. God is good. He's holy. He's righteous. He's the just judge. But sin is evil and corrupting and destructive. And sin is one day going to take the world to such a place where the world's going to try to destroy itself. And God in his mercy is going to stop it. And if not for his mercy, if not for him intervening through judgments, the world would completely tear itself apart. And so that's the context here of judgment. And we're going to get into a bit, a bit more next time. But I just, I just want to give that to just tweak our, our view and how we see the judgments of God. Um, so if you want to see how Jesus kind of relates a bit to, to sin and the judgment and those things, look, look check out um, the book of Matthew next week is going to be Palm Sunday, and you have Jesus, when in the book of Matthew, he's riding in to Jerusalem, okay? So he's coming in, and he's on a donkey. He's fulfilling the prophecy, and he's on a donkey because it also represents his humility, and he's coming in to establish his kingdom. So that's what's happening in the book of Revelation, mind you. The kingdom is being fulfilled, and it's kicking off right now with Jesus coming in Jerusalem, and when he gets in Jerusalem, what does he do? He goes to the temple, and he flips over all the tables, and he trashes the temple. And he said, this house of, you've turned this house of prayer into a den of thieves. I won't have it. And, and so there's a zeal that comes on Jesus because the sin and corruption has even gotten the temple itself. And he is, he is righteous in what he's doing. He is just in what he's doing. And he's actually prophesying through that that this temple is about to be destroyed. And so he comes later in the same chapter, or not, I don't know the same chapter, but the same storyline. And he's looking at at Jerusalem, and he is lamenting because he knows judgment's coming to her. And he's lamenting, saying, I'll read it to you. This gives you God's heart in the midst of judgment. This is his heart. He says, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing, and you were not willing. This is about the severity of sin. This is about God giving people choices and, and them choosing sin and darkness. This is not about God's heart. God's heart is this. I have longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under their wings. 
This is a really key concept for reading the book of Revelation. And, and for me personally, it's, it's transformed how I, how I view judgment because it's real and it's in the book. And you have to grapple with it. You can't just cut it out. <laughs> Worship team, you guys could, could come up for me. Um, here's a quote that Mike Bickle has that I thought was, a, was really helpful in this topic. He says, um, God uses the least severe means to reach the greatest number of people at the deepest level of love. That was really good. He uses the least severe means to reach the greatest number of people at the deepest level of love. If you all could stand up for me. I, um, I had this dream that I want to share with you that connects with this. This is maybe a few weeks ago. And in my dream, I was in a church, not this church, this, some made-up dream church. Okay? And I'm in this dream church, and I see the wind, uh, the winds outside the church blowing, blowing. And it's a good, it's a hurricane wind, but it's a wind I want to see. Right, this is exciting, not scary. And so I see the winds blowing, and and there's this excitement of me, and God is doing something. And I'm looking in the church, and there's only one person in the church that I could identify, and she's a person that I've known for a long time, haven't seen in 20 years, <laughs> haven't thought about in 20 years. God bless her. Um, and her name, uh, her name is Holly. And and so I so I'm praying with the Lord, I'm like, why am I seeing Holly in the in the in the temple, in the church, with the wind blowing. Like, what, is, what is this? What is this dream? And the Lord begins speaking to me and says, Holly is holiness, and I'm bringing holiness into the church. And her last name actually is Sacra. And holiness actually, you know, it's, it's God's, it's sacred, right? And her name means pious one, holy one. And, and holiness is, it's the power of God in the goodness of God. And so even in this throne room experience, as we're reading this, you see the power and goodness, the holiness of God fills that room. And I believe it's going to start filling churches more and more. And it, this happened, the first, second awakening, if you read the stories, there was the holiness, the glory, the, the goodness and power of God was filling churches. And, and what it was doing, there was hearts being convicted but there was also this cleansing. There was a cleansing power from being in the throne, from being around the throne of Jesus, from seeing God rightly. And I believe, and in my dream, there was like, when this windstorm hit, all these young people started flooding into the church, like super young, like teenagers, like flooding in the church, filling seats in, in the church. And so, you know, you think a holiness message is that really going to excite teenagers? Yes, it will, because the Spirit of God's going to be on it. And when they see him, when we, you and I see him rightly, things are going to start falling off of our life that should never have been there. And I see today, I believe even today as, as we go into this time of worship, there's, there's a cleansing taking place where God's restoring us back to an innocence. I want to say that again. God wants to restore you to this place of innocence. This place of innocence. Because when we get before him and we see him as he is, we realize, behold, the Lamb of God who, who covers every sin. The Lamb of God who covers every sin and whose sacrifice 
is enough to cleanse me, to make me whole, to heal me. And so, Father God, today we just come before you right now, and we worship you, and we say you're majestic, you're holy, you're wonderful, you're glorious, and your ways are glorious. And we thank you, Father, that you're sovereign and that you're good in all that you do. And I thank you, Lord, that you are powerful and you are mighty and you are holy. And we get to look like you. So, God, I pray today, even as we worship you, as we set our face to gaze on you, you would deliver us. I pray deliverance right now from, from sexual addiction from sexual confusion, deliverance in Jesus' name. Sexual perversion, he wants to come and heal. He wants to come and restore. So we say come from depression, from suicidal thoughts. Holy Spirit, come. Consume those thought patterns. Consume all of us, that we would just say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy is the Lamb to cleanse us of all of our sin, to restore our souls, to renew our minds, and to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So those of you in the Zoom room, I want you to go into your, into your rooms, pray for one another, and for those in this room, we're going we're gonna to worship.